Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see everyone on this glorious Lord's Day. Welcome to those of you who are visiting with us. Very glad that you're here. And uh, looking forward to fellowship around the Lord's Word just now. So, um, if you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. I'm going to wrap up our discussion of chapter 6 today, Lord willing. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14 and read down through chapter 7 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 14. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of God's holy word? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing his holy word. Be seated, please. Now, the last couple of messages from uh, 2 Corinthians, beginning really in chapter 5, but uh, especially in chapter 6, we've been looking at the whole idea of being an ambassador that we've talked about at the end of chapter 5, the commissioning that is ours and what is entailed in it's kind of the job description. Uh, we also looked at that as well in chapter 6, in the earlier uh, portions of, uh, that, uh, of this section where Paul is speaking about uh, what, our, what our conduct as an ambassador is to be in, in holiness and in servanthood and all of that. And then here at the end of chapter 6, he launches into a passage that at first glance sort of looks like an afterthought. Like, why, why is this here? It doesn't seem to really fit at first. As he's speaking about being ambassadors and going out and, and being faithful in your witness and so on. And then he turns around and, and zeroes in on, on their hearts and says... Now, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And at first glance, you kind of think, why, why is that here? But I'd like you to turn back up just a few verses and look at verse 1 again of chapter 6. Remember, he's been talking about being an ambassador with Christ, representing Christ, and, and working together with Christ there in chapter 1 says, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Critical verse for understanding why verses 14 and following are there. And why it is not an afterthought. Paul wanted to deal, first of all, with your conduct and deal with that as an ambassador, but then really shift over now, saying, all right, you've received God's gift. Don't receive it in vain. And let me talk to you about that now. Because as we uh, are walking in this life as ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not ambassadors of merely a friendly divine neighbor. Okay? You and I are ambassadors of the King. And though we often think uh, narrowly, in terms of being his ambassador to the fallen world, i.e. as a witness or an evangelist or whatever. Uh, and, and that's true. 
But we are also ambassadors to one another. Especially uh, those who are called to particular offices and activities within the church. So in the present passage, Paul is zeroing in on a specific message to believers who are living in the midst of a corrupt society. Here he's not so much focused on what you are to say to the fallen world. In a sense, he's already kind of talked about this. But in this particular, and and we do have a lot of messages from God's word, do we not? But in this particular section, he's talking to believers who need to be careful as ambassadors to exhort one another not to go back to the fallen way of life. I think for those of you who have been here uh, throughout this series, we've had occasion to remember that the church in Corinth had a, a problem or two staying distanced from the wickedness around them. Long time ago, when we were going through 1 Corinthians, we noted how wicked that society was, and we had occasion to review that when we started this series on 2 Corinthians as well. An incredibly corrupt uh, an ungodly society. And these folks that were saved out of that were still surrounded by it, still had family members and friends and business associates and all those other connections that we have in the world because that's how the world economy works. And so the temptation to go back and begin to let things slide and begin to entertain the idea of, well, we don't want to be too hard-nosed about this. We don't want to be unpleasant or unfriendly. We want to maintain as many connections as we can. After all, our business depends upon it. Our, fa- our family peace depends upon it. Or just, I have some things I'd like to do and rather not let go of. Depends upon it. But they needed to fight that temptation just like you and I do. Because the, surround, the society that surround us, surrounds us is constantly calling us back into the, those old sinful ways of living and thinking. Our society is no less wicked and corrupt than theirs was. So we have plenty to do to call each other to faithfulness. Now I know that this passage, uh, particularly in our circles in the Bible Presbyterian Church, is often used as a proof text for the doctrine of biblical separation and thinking about associations that we maintain as churches and as individuals and and sometimes is used uh, as something of a club to uh, um, beat people over the head with who um, don't, we, from from our perspective, are not walking in obedience to God's word. The focus here really is not so much on church associations, though certainly those kinds of applications could be made. But the focus here is upon believers not going back to unbelievers in, in our conduct. Uh, not, this isn't talking so much about believers who have a diff- difficulty of, of agreement on non-essential points uh, with other believers. Okay? So with that in mind then, let us keep this thesis in mind as we walk through. Do not go back to the defilements of the fallen life. Now let's talk about this, the different kinds of defilements that are here. In verses 14 through 16, I'm going to call these public defilements. Though in a sense, all defilements are going to eventually show themselves in a public way. But this is more of a corporate kind of uh, setting, if you will. In verse 14, we read that, that statement that we've already, I've already quoted a couple times. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he goes through this series of questions. In a sense, in a sense these questions leave no stone unturned. In terms of how, uh, it does, they don't leave us any wiggle room for saying, well, you know, we can come alongside unbelievers and do the things that they do, and it'll be all right. Nope. Uh, Paul makes this. We've got six, six questions here. And the first one, 
uh, or, or questions or um, statements. A command of being of not being unequally yoked. Now, yoked, the unequally yoked, has the idea of being. It, that translates one word. It means mismatched. Now, I'm I'm not a farmer. <laughs> uh, certainly, have never uh, hitched up a, a yoke of oxen or anything like that. So, I have absolutely no idea uh, of what what really is involved in that, except you know, you hook them up and hang on and. Uh, but uh, I've read a lot about it, I will say that. And uh, what I've read makes a lot of sense to me. If you've got, if you've got one oxen that's, that's really big and strong and the other one's weak, um, it might be okay depending on, you know, if you want to go in a circle. But you kind of need to have them pretty well matched in strength and size or you're going to have a hard time going in a straight line. Okay. So... Uh, do not be unequally yoked means don't be mismatched with believers. Don't think that you're going to get a straight line out of this life if you spend all of your time working in concord with unbelievers to try to do God's work. Now, it's one thing, of course, when uh, we have business associates, um, all of us work here, uh, to, or those of us that are working, uh, we know what it's like you know, when we have a business or we're involved in a business, or we're doing something else that not everybody out there is a Christian. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of a necessity of life, of being in the world, but not of it. And yet on those things where the Lord's, uh, it's, where, where righteous things are being done, and I don't necessarily mean religious things, but righteous things in terms of productivity and honest labor and all of those things that we read of, for example, in the book of Ecclesiastes that have been given us to do, well, by all means, those, those are perfectly fine. And in a sense, that is doing certainly what the Lord would have us to do. On the other hand, if the nature of the business is, is utterly corrupt and the nature of the uh, in, enterprise that we're wanting to get in, whether it's a business thing or an entertainment thing or something else, is completely wicked and ungodly, and we go along with it just because, after all, we want to be, you know, at peace with, with folks. Um, that's walking in a mismatched relationship, and we're commanded to avoid that. And in case we don't really understand what that's all about, we have all of these questions to that, that uh, Paul continues to go on. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Now, Partnership here is not a complicated word at all in the original language. It means, you ready? Uh, partnership. Okay. It means working together at, on an equal footing together to accomplish a particular task. And where those things are ungodly and pursuing the, the, the things that work in, that are contrary to our Lord, that it ought not to be done. It doesn't make any sense. Righteousness and unrighteousness are not working towards the same goals. It, it, that we're going to talk about that little thought in a little bit here. But turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. And in verse uh, 3, beginning at verse 3, we read, But sexual immorality and all purity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So the apostle here to the Ephesian church, same type of thought of the contrast between, in that particular case, light and darkness. Um, if you turn the light on, does darkness exist anymore? Uh, no, not unless it's in a corner under, under a rock or something, but uh, no, when light comes on, the darkness disappears. When the darkness is, when light's turned off, the darkness reappears. Right? It's hard to have them both at the same time. And we try, we talk about twilight and all those sorts of things. And unfortunately, we have way too many that want to be twilight Christians. That are content with seeing dimly. 
and giving a dim light. Paul says to both the Corinthian church and the Ephesian church and to us, that doesn't make any sense and it is displeasing to our Lord. It cannot, we cannot coexist that way. Do not walk in partnership. It, it is a defilement. Partnership, particularly, again, in the, in the pursuit of those things that God uh, hates. Then look at the next uh, question. What fellowship has light with darkness? Also in verse 14. Fellowship is a familiar one, I think, probably to most everyone here. In the Greek, it's the word koinonia. It's not just speaking about getting together and having a good time. It's speaking about um, an, an intimate, holy, deep, back and forth relationship of dependence and encouragement and, and mutual uh, agreement and strengthening. So uh, I was trying to be careful in that word fellowship. It gets used a lot even in the secular world. Oh, we're, you know, we're going to go out, yeah, we went out to dinner and had some fellowship. It's like, well, uh, and even among Christians, it's like we use that too flippantly. What kind of fellowship did you have? Did you talk about sports? Talk about cars? Okay. Can you have a degree of fellowship there? Well, I suppose. I mean, you can have friendship and, and all of that. But the type of fellowship that Koinonia is referring to has to do with a meeting of the heart and soul about things of eternity. And that kind of fellowship is something that is really rather rare. And yet there are many that would like to have this strong, deep, abiding connection with people and seek that meeting of the heart with those that are opposed to our God, either either outwardly and violently or even inadvertently and ignorantly, but it's very difficult to have a deep abiding fellowship and connection with each other when you are not agreed about the very nature of who God is, who you are in relationship to him, what his role in the world is, and what he calls us to do. You can only go so far. You can have a good time. But until you're agreed on the very basic building blocks of who and what God is, you can, you're going to run into an impasse at some point where discussion really can't even take place. But we will try. And if we try to the point that we are willing to set aside God's truth in order to have this deep abiding commitment, um, that's a problem. It's a real problem. In fact, it's sin. And we need to not do it. Uh, this also speaks, by the way, to, uh, by extension, the relationship between men and women, looking, you know, the whole idea of, of uh, not marrying someone who's not a believer. I mean, that's kind of the foundation here, the same, same way. Uh, just don't do it because you, you will not be truly united. There's another defilement uh, that's referred to in the next uh, verse, verse 15. What accord has Christ with Belial, or the devil? So the word accord is what we're focusing in on here. And this is an awesome word in Greek. Um, I, I, I know why they didn't translate it according to what the Greek word suggests, because it would be kind of, a strange use of the word, but uh, in the Greek, um, let's see if you can pick out the English word that we use today from it. Uh, symphonesis. Symphony is the is the word that uh, we use in English. This idea of accord or agreement, the defilement of agreement with unbelievers. Now, um, as a musician. When I hear the word symphony, I don't just think of a bunch of instrumentalists standing up there, uh, sitting up there, and doing their thing. Um, that's, I, mean, I think of that, a symphony orchestra or whatever. But there's also the whole idea of why it's called a symphony. In that they're not just up there, though with modern music, sometimes you would think that they are, um, just each instrument playing their own thing, doing whatever they want to in whatever key or time signature or anything else that they want to do. And 
with somebody standing up there waving his arms, which anymore, now when they wave their arms, it doesn't seem like they're waving their arms for any particular purpose except to fan themselves. Uh, but when they, are all, when they are all working together, off, playing off the same sheet of music, as it were, each with its own part, each with its own degree of, of volume, its own degree, its own, the, 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 not so much the tempo, but the rhythms and so on, that all work together in harmony. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? The difference between the warm-up before a concert, when everybody's down there doing their thing, and how anybody tunes anything all at the same time that way, I have no idea. I guess you just train yourself to do that. But once all the warm-up starts, and then they start playing, it's like, oh, here we go. Here we go. Do we want that in this world? Wouldn't that be nice? To have no Portland's. No Seattle's, no Minneapolis. And I'm not necessarily speaking about getting rid of those cities. I'm just speaking about the actions that have gone on there. And take that all over the world. And, you know, as, uh, you know, what, just this past week, Hamas uh, renewing its attacks on Israel and all of that kind of stuff that goes on. Wouldn't that be nice when that's all done? Right now, world history is essentially like an orchestra in the orchestra pit tuning their instruments, but pretending that somehow that's the piece. And it's awful, and it's ugly. And we long for symphony. We long for playing together in harmony. And the world talks a lot about this. And they have all their peace accords, same word, they have their peace accords, they have their agreements, they have the treaties, and all of that stuff most of the time means just about zero in the fallen world. But we will try. But the world will fail at this. Unfortunately, believers get caught up in this. And I'm sure Corinth, in Corinth they struggled with this just as we do. We've got those that are walking according to the beat of a different drum. They're, they're playing off of a different sheet of music. But we want to play nice. And we want to get along. And we want to let things go. And we want to get on board with certain things that, after all, for the sake of peace, for the sake of harmony. We had a, we had a situation like this last year, if you remember, here in Bonners Ferry, for those of you that live around here, regarding the vision statement for the city that was brought out that was... Uh, pro-perversion. And the church here in this community was faced with a decision. Are we just going to lay down for the sake of peace and not riling things up? We're just going to let it go. After all, it doesn't really represent us. So, okay, and we'll, we'll, we'll work on the parts that we can get a, 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 on board with and then we'll let the rest go. Or we're going to stand up and say no. Praise God, enough people stood up and said no. And I was thankful for the symphony among those that were willing to say God's truth and God's righteousness is more important than a, a leftist perverted agenda. But it is so easy to say, oh well, it's just so much bother. It's just, I, I know they're unbelievers and I know it's, I just need to show them love. Right. Well, it certainly isn't loving to let people go on unchecked in their wickedness. That is the height of being unloving. So we need to not get caught up in that lie and defile ourselves with this kind of uh, pretend. And it really is a pretense. It's not real. It's not a real symphony. It's, it's a false piece. And the Lord will judge it. So, we don't have accord. Christ has no accord with, with the devil. So, why would we try just to get along? Then uh, there is uh, the next question. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And portion here is the idea of, of an inheritance. In Nehemiah chapter 2, 
the uh, they had been governors, leaders, Sanballat and Tobias. They had uh, positions of authority, and they resented Nehemiah coming and rebuilding Jerusalem. And they looked a large part of the, at least the opening chapters of the book of Nehemiah are revealing all the different ways that Sanballat and Tobias tried to undermine the work. One thing after another. Sometimes it was just insult and being smart Alex. <laughs> other times it was actual efforts to try to undermine things by sending letters off to the king. Others were just trying to, to instill fear through threats and all of that. And then through, okay, that all didn't work. So then they come along and say, well, let us help. All right, you know, I see this isn't going to help. We'll just come alongside and help you. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. I know the way I've laid it out for you right now, we already know what our answers would be, right? So if I said, what would you say? We would go, well, no way. But at the same time, put yourself in those positions. And after being, you know, resisted and pushed back on and insulted and mocked, it's like, finally, they're coming around. Let's go ahead and we'll, we'll have them help us out. What did Nehemiah say to them? Politely, he said, there's the door, don't let it hit you on the way out. He said, you have no claim or portion in Jerusalem. You've got nothing to do with God's work. So when the wicked come up and they want to help you build the church, when the wicked come up and they want to help you do God's work, um, yeah, look the gift horse in the mouth and say no. Because they don't have an inheritance. They have no portion or claim to the things of God as long as they're walking in rebellion against Him. So don't be unequally yoked with them. Because they're going after a different inheritance than you are. And then, in case there was any doubt left, verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The defilement of idolatry with unbelievers. Uh, now, the word agreement here, by the way, is a different word than the one we had earlier. This word, uh, it's not even from the same root. But it has the idea of a mutual agreement back and forth. Now, I want you to think about uh, the American political scene here. Oh, in the last... Well, really, it kind of gained quite a lot of impetus even in the Reagan, during the Reagan administration and so on. And the whole idea of the, you know, the faith community and, and government wanting to work with faith-based ministries and... That came a lot in the Bush administration as well. But the whole idea that, uh, that, a gov you know, a, a, that the U.S. government was going to come alongside and provide funding and guidance and opportunities for faith-based ministries to come uh, along and, and help our society, which uh, on one side of the, the, the argument... Uh, is that uh, necessarily a horrible thing? Well, I, I suppose not in one respect, uh, but I immediately, my mind goes back in church history to things like, oh, Constantine, making Christianity the official religion uh, from purely political motives to try to unite things because he didn't want war. It was a practical matter for the state. What good did it actually do the church is really debatable. In fact, it's really not debatable. Noting from that time the decline of the impact of the church uh, in terms of it, the purity of its witness and testimony really started with Constantine there in that region. When we come alongside and we say, well, yeah, we'll accept the government's help to do this, that, and the other thing, uh, we are watering down the message because after all, who is the God that owns the cattle of a thousand hills? Who is the one who, whose church uh, will withstand every assault of the devil? Who is the one who provides for everything? It's the Lord. It's not the government. 
And when we water down God's message of deliverance with being willing to take the aid of those who walk in opposition to him, we're essentially saying God's not enough. He's not enough. Which is a dishonor to him. And we do not have any agreement with those who worship themselves or men in general or false gods of any kind. Amos chapter 3 asks this question. And this kind of comes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? If we don't have a common goal, then why would we do things together as if we did? I mean, really, society in general is about, okay, there's this goal. There's a a goal to uh, increase oil production. Okay, consortiums come together, and they raise funds and all of that for a particular goal. And that goal would be to drill more oil wells, right? You don't put a consortium together to drill oil wells if one part of the consortium wants to go and um, do windmills or something else, right? That uh, would even be in competition necessarily, uh, or, or certainly it would be a taking away of resources that could be put towards the common goal. And I'm not going to get into whether windmills or drilling, oils, uh, drilling oil wells is, is good, bad, or indifferent. That's not the point. The point is, I think, that we all understand if we're going to come together, it is for a common purpose. And if we don't have a common purpose, then guess what? We're not going to be able to walk together. It's as easy as that. What is the purpose of the unbeliever? The, 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 the life that the Corinthians left behind of idolatry and perversity and lasciviousness and wickedness of every kind. What is their purpose? Is it in concert with the purposes of God? It is not. We all know the answer to that. So we cannot walk together unless we have agreed to meet And if you look at this from the other side of the equation, dear friends, if you have agreed to meet and wanting to walk with, in accord with the fallen world, you have to ask yourself, um, what goals am I really after? Who am I really serving? Is it me or is it God? Is it the world or is it God? What's it going to be? What did Joshua say to the people? Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So do not go back to public defilement. Filing ourselves with various uh, ways of of, uh, connecting ourselves with unbelievers with the supposed goal of making God's kingdom better. Uh, it, It cannot be done. With the supposed goal of living to glorify Christ, you can't glorify Christ and exalt the world. It cannot be done. If you look over in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, if you were in Sunday school, we talked a little bit about this this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, as in living a life of sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, 
that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That is our goal. And we cannot do that if we have connected ourselves so intimately with the world that we adjust all of our actions and all of our thinking according to what will make the fallen world happy. Can't be done. Must be put aside. So those are public things, but also, as you noticed, just even this list from 1 Peter chapter 4, there's also what I'll call private defilements, those that are the defilements of our own hearts. So take a look then at uh, chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians and verse 1. Since we have these promises, and we're going to talk about the promises in a moment. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There is a lot packed into this verse. Take a look. First of all, put off everything that is an offense to your holy God. Everything that is an offense. Cleanse yourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. We serve a holy God. Put off all of those things that are an offense. Now, I want you to have in your, in your mind's, uh, mind's eye the question, how do I cleanse myself? Okay. How do you cleanse yourself? Isn't that the Lord's work? Yes, it is. But certainly we also have personal responsibility, do we not, to strive against those things that are lawless and to, to live in obedient love before our holy God. So put off those things and then put on everything um, by, uh, that is a joy. The word I'm going to use here, but those things that are pleasing to your your holy God, we we don't we're not just cleansing ourselves from all of it and being like that. You know what Jesus said about the the individual whose the demons were driven out and the house swept and clean, but nothing replaced it. The demons came back. So bringing holiness to completion, right, uh, has to do with putting on everything that is. Uh, pleasing to our holy God. So let's be diligent in those things. Uh, this is our responsibility in the cleansing of ourselves by laying aside the weights that so easily beset us and pressing on for the prize of the high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Then, uh, since we have these promises, suggest uh, that, and, and we're called to do these things, I am suggesting to you here, though the word is not used, that we need to be motivated by gratitude. Bob Jones Sr. used to say that, that uh, when gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, that man is well nigh hopeless. And the reason that I think that's a true statement is because if we're ungrateful what are, to, to God, what are we really saying? That we don't owe anything to him that we are at least as powerful and able as him, and we can do it on our own. Essentially, we're idolaters, right? So if we, are, we recognize his promises, that he is the one who sovereignly and powerfully undertakes for us and does all things and brings about his holy will and, and makes us these promises that we know that he is able and willing to keep, our hearts ought to be humbled before him and therefore grateful for his attention, for his love, for his plan, for his calling, for his securing of our souls through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Be motivated by gratitude. If you walk gratefully before a holy God, you will be much less likely to defy him. Children in this church, 
Be grateful for what your parents do for you. If you are grateful to them for their love, for their supplying of your needs, for their, yes, even their discipline, if you are grateful for them, you will be much less likely to walk in disobedience to them. Every act of disobedience is an act of an ungrateful heart that says, I have the right to say what I want to say or do what I want to do without regard to you because after all, you, I don't owe you anything. Which is a lie. And it's even more of a lie when it's between us and the Lord. So be motivated by gratitude for these incredible promises that he's given to us. And then also, uh, I, again, intimated here, not just gratitude, but th th you really need to be motivated by your faith as well in those promises. It's not just I'm grateful he made them. I recognize who he is and he has the right to make those promises. But there really is the aspect of faith that he will keep those promises. And therefore, living in the light of that reality uh, is going to have an impact on whether you walk in a holy manner or not. Because if these promises are to us, and they're pretty incredible, well, then we want to live uh, within the, the joy of those promises and expect that they will take place. So be motivated by faith in his promises. And then uh, also, finally, in this verse, be motivated by reverence. Notice that it's holiness to completion in the fear of God. Reverencing our God, recognizing that he's not merely just the God of love. It's kind of a strange thing to say, merely the God of love. He's not only the God of love. He's also a God of wrath and justice and holiness. So he does have the power to judge and correct so live within that, um, that understanding as we are striving to walk more and more conform to the image of Jesus Christ in holiness. Recognize that it's not just so that we can make ourselves feel good that we've done something great, but because we have to answer to a holy and powerful God. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So don't go back to those personal defilements of, of pride and wickedness and lust and greed and, and all of the things that the world is characterized by that says, the world says is okay. As long as, you know, you got to be you. You know, just you do you. And whatever works for you, that's great. Uh, it's not great. That's um, a complete uh, rebellion against a God who said, you need to do Christ not you. You need to be conformed to his image, not your own. So there needs to be that willingness to, to put aside those personal defilements of our character and behavior. Don't go back to that aspect of the fallen way of life. Now take a look at the central part of this passage. Paul uh, Paul says here that we are indeed the temple of the living God. We're not to defile the temple. And look at the promises here that come as a result of being the temple of the living God, the one with whom God dwells. He dwells, he says, promise one, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Promise two, I will be their God. Promise three, they shall be my people. Then down to verse 17, last phrase. I will welcome you, 18. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me. These are amazing promises. But God only dwells with you if you are truly his. He says, be separate from them, verse 17. Be separate from, those, from unbelievers and from the life that they value. And as you do that, he will dwell with you as a companion. He will dwell with you as a father. He dwells with you as your God. Both in a corporate sense, as a body, but also in a familial sense. These promises speak of the full, satisfying, glorious relationship of the believer with their God. Paul says that's where you need to be. 
And when he gets into verse 17, he really begins to answer that question, though we've hinted around about it quite a bit so far, but he really zeroes on the answer to the question, how do you cleanse yourself? Look at the components of that. You want to cleanse yourself? It's not just a matter of wishful thinking. It's not just a matter of, I hope this will happen. And it's not just a matter of, over time, somehow, it's just mystically, I'm going to become more righteous. Some pretty specific commands. You want to enjoy the blessings? You walk in faith in those, in those promises? Great. Go out from their midst. Go out from their midst. The Lord calls you to holiness. Holiness in a couple of different ways. First of all here, holiness in distance from the ways and practices of unbelievers. First John chapter 2, the Apostle John says, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Put distance between yourself and the fallen ways and practices and thinkings of the fallen world. That doesn't mean go live in a cave. That's not what it's about. It's about making sure that you're not partnering with those ways and, and condoning those ways and adopting those ways of thinking and behaving just so that you can get along in the world. Holiness and distance from the ways and practices of unbelievers. Secondly, we read, be separate from them. The word separate here has the idea of marking out boundaries. Is what it literally means. So there needs to be a holiness in recognizing the boundaries between you and unbelievers. All of you, I think, are probably pretty familiar with Psalm, um, uh, Psalm 1. Verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. If you've ever heard a sermon on this psalm itself, it's no doubt been pointed out to you to note the progression of walking, standing, sitting. That the longer you get comfortable with the ways of the wicked, the more comfortable position you want to get in uh, from just walking to standing to being comfy with your slippers on and uh, whatever else. Recognize the boundaries that there are. By all means, we have to have uh, a certain degree of communion between each other just as because we live in the world we have to talk we have to work together we have to do all of those things but recognize that there are boundaries uh, boundaries of behavior boundaries of thought boundaries of who uh, of our of our sense of who to whom our allegiance belongs recognize those boundaries and then finally as we go back to second uh, corinthians and verse uh, 6 verse 17 and touch no unclean thing. This has to do with not just, we've talked about distance, okay? Um, not, and this is where some of the associations come in with those who are unbelievers. We don't want to be identified with those kinds of things. Recognize what the boundaries are. But then it's not just a matter of taking a look and theoretically, uh, okay, yeah, I'm not them, and I'm not this, and I'm not that. Holiness in your interactions. Touch not the unclean thing. This word touch has the idea of taking hold of the unclean thing. Euphemistically, this word speaks of intercourse. Translated numerous times in the New Testament. So this is not about just, Paul's not saying just go live in a cocoon somewhere. But it's talking about, about intimate connections for the purpose of the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of profit, the pursuit of uh, position, whatever it might be. Be holy in the interactions that you have with unbelievers. In Ephesians chapter 5, again, wrap up uh, this section with these verses. Uh, essentially picking up where we left off in verse 8. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So don't play around with wickedness. And don't think you can go along and get along with, uh, with unbelief and come away unscathed. You cannot. You will be walking in disobedience before the Lord, and the Lord will judge. He is uh, the one to be feared, and we need to recognize that. Now, yes, we are commanded to cleanse ourselves. Ultimately, we know from previous discussions in 2 Corinthians that Christ is the ultimate cleaner, the ultimate cleanser. He's the one who cleans, cleanses us from our sins. But we are also to stand fast against the snares of the devil. When he saves you, it is not so that you can safely remain in your sins and live a life of disobedience. Beloved, do not go back to the fallen way of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not leave us to our own devices. As your children, you discipline us, you call us to obedience, you love us, you do not let us alone. Lord, help us to faithfully walk in your presence and not go back to the ways of the world that only lead to death. No matter what pleasures there may be momentarily uh, in sin, and they are there. They are deadly and they are dishonoring to you and destructive to all around us. Lord, keep us in your hand. Strengthen us, Lord, so that when we are tempted, as you have promised, that you will show us the way of escape so that we will live a life that is worthy by your grace of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we